Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Sam Mall. This week, we're going to take a deep dive into financial inclusion, financial literacy, and financial health in the U.S. As a U.S. citizen working in this industry, this subject's really important to me. America still has the world's largest economy, and we have more banks than anywhere else in the world. To put this in perspective, the U.S. has about 4,805 commercial banks as of June 2018, more than the European Bank Confederation, with only 3,500 banks across 32 countries. And on top of that, you can add in another 7,000 or so credit unions in the U.S. So basically, we have a lot of banks and credit unions, but as a nation, we're pretty bad at managing our money or where we go to for advice. Not only that, but wages have collectively risen by just 10% since the early 1970s, whereas the cost of living has soared, meaning millions of Americans are struggling to afford their day-to-day living. As my good friend John Hope Bryant put it, they have too much month at the end of the money. Let me prove this further with some stats from the Center for Financial Services Innovation, or CSFI, published this year. Only just over half of Americans are listed as financially coping, 55% to be specific. And only 28% are listed as financially healthy. 40% do not plan ahead financially. 47% are spending more than their income. 30% say they have more debt than they can manage. 45% do not have enough savings to cover their basic living costs for three months. 36% cannot pay their bills on time. So to kick off the show, we wanted to dig into the definitions. First of all, what is financial inclusion? What does it really mean? We spoke to some fantastic industry experts working to tackle financial inclusion and financial health in the U.S. in all its capacities, from regulation to credit scores and everything in between. We put the question to them. This is Ramona Ortega. Ramona is a good friend of mine. She's the founder of My Money, My Future, and she's also an entrepreneur in residence with ASLO. Right. Well, I think the financial inclusion overall is the ability to provide access and opportunity to all different types of communities and demographics. So exclusion for me is not just about sort of a bank account, but whether or not people have equity in that inclusion. Um, Oftentimes in the U.S., for example, we talk about equality, but sometimes what we really need to be talking about is equity. As you know, there's a huge wealth gap divided. It highly correlates along racial lines in the U.S., right? So we have what we call a racial wealth gap in the U.S. So equity at this point isn't enough. We have to really have, or equality is not enough. We have to have, we have to have equity and which is why we oftentimes talk about financial inclusion, about being focused in particular demographics. And I think that's everywhere, right? When we talk about the global South, we, re- we recognize that there has been um, sort of decades of inequality that we need, to, we need to fix, that we need to provide a solution to bring people up to par. And I think that's what financial inclusion is for me, is that how do we get people on equal footing? Um, and give them the access and opportunities um, to sort of create their own financial trajectory and, and mobility. Clearly, I think that there's there's big differences, um, and and there's lots of interesting things that are happening. For example, I think there's been a lot of talk in the U.S. about the sort of unbanked or underbanked, right? And so that focus has been on um, getting people a bank account or access to a bank account. And while that is extremely important. 
a bank account alone doesn't change your financial sort of mobility, right? I mean, if you have no money to put in a bank account, a bank account alone doesn't help. So financial inclusion is all about access to financial services. That's only the beginning of the story. As we mentioned, we have many, many financial services and banks in the U.S. But having a bank account just isn't enough. That doesn't automatically make you financially stable and able to manage your money. That statistic we mentioned earlier, about 28% of the country being described as financially unhealthy, really stands out. We wanted to dig deep into that. What does financially unhealthy really mean? How can you be financially healthy or indeed financially unhealthy? Jennifer Tesher, the founder of the Center for Financial Services Innovation, gave us the 101 on what financial health means to her at Money 2020 in Vegas this past October. Financial health is when you have a day-to-day system that enables you to build resilience and pursue opportunity. So it's really about being able to manage and protect against the downside and take advantage of the upside. And you need to have a really strong day-to-day financial system to be able to do that. Financial health is for all. And we should also pay special attention to people who don't have it. Um, But it's relevant for everybody. And, you know, while financial inclusion is a very important topic, particularly in developing countries where, like, millions of people are still excluded and have no access, that is not the case in places like the United States or in other developed countries. Um, The vast majority of people have an account, have access, but their financial health is still poor. This is Isabel Barres. She's the global director at Accession, which is a nonprofit committed to financial inclusion, and she's also VP at the Center for Financial Services Innovation. I work with the Center for Financial Inclusion at Accession, and what we focus on is mostly looking at uh, global issues related to financial inclusion and the extent to which we can foster a better ecosystem to encourage financial inclusion. We're thinking about the, the end goal for financial inclusion is not just to make sure that there's a broader set of products and services that is available to clients globally, but that the products really do contribute to improving financial health. The way that we think about financial health and the way that we measure financial health is really to say that an individual is financially healthy when there are a number of conditions that are met. Uh, so when balance, when there is a balance between the income and the expense stream for the client, when the client also has the ability to build and maintain reserves and, and plan for the future, when the client also has the ability to manage existing debts effectively, and when there is also the ability to plan, prioritize for the future and to recover from financial shocks. So there are a number of elements that are at play, but both in terms of the ability to manage existing income streams and, and also planning for the future and building resilience towards the future. So as Isabel explains, you're in good financial health if you can manage your finances up to a point where you can plan for the future and have the security to recover from any shocks, i.e. a sudden drain on your money. Like you need to buy a new car or lose your job and have no income for a little while, etc. As Jennifer mentions, having a bank account is only the beginning of the issue. Financial inclusion often starts and ends with access to a bank account and banking products. But access to services does not necessarily mean your finances are magically sorted. Not to mention, as Ramona alludes to, there's a huge wealth gap in the U.S., with divisions obvious across multiple demographics, including regional and racial. We caught up with John Hope Bryant at Money 2020 in Vegas, 
and he explained this even further. With the exception of Native American Indians and African American slaves, uh, everybody else here is an immigrant. And uh, they're descendants of type A personalities who came here from Ireland, Poland, Germany, wherever, uh, throughout Europe mostly, uh, and Asia and Latin America with a sense of self-determination. That was five generations ago. In some cases, eight generations ago. In some cases, three generations ago. But we sort of take that for granted that, that okay, we're Americans. Well, you're, you're American, but that's really saying I'm a freedom freak. Uh, I'm an independence freak. I'm an opportunity freak. I'm, I'm hooked on aspiration. The reason this country is the greatest economy on the planet is because you've got these type A personalities who came from all over the world with a dream to make themselves better. And that's very different from the people that I tend to represent who had that optimism beat out of them, were told that they were not somebody. They told they were not special uh, or believe it. And my job is to reintroduce them back to themselves. So if a racial and class divide in wealth distribution and access to financial services and financial advice in this country. Incidentally, John wrote The Memo, a fantastic book on just that and how the invisible class, as he called them, can reimagine their financial situation and take back control. You should definitely check it out. Likewise, with the financial wealthy pulling away from the pack as the wealth gap increases all the time, even the middle class is getting squeezed out. We mentioned earlier that wages are not rising anywhere near in line with the cost of living, which makes managing your finances difficult for almost everyone. I mean, if you're middle class today, you feel poor. I mean, 64% of all uh, Americans, I know you're a global podcast, but this is, this is actually related to the UK, uh, France. I mean, all the developed countries are dealing with the same thing. But specifically in the U.S., 64% of all those who live here don't have $500 in time of an unplanned disaster. You have 130 million Americans who have a financial blemish. You have 70% of Americans who are living from paycheck to paycheck. 70%. And this economy is driven 70% by consumer spending. So literally the folks who are chartered to do all this great work aren't given the tools to live a great life. And incomes from middle-class Americans have not really rose since the mid-70s. I think the financial wellness Financial well-being is the next big thing in workplaces because I think people are financially stressed out. They have too much month at the end of their money. How would you go about fixing this? It's a huge issue and no small task to undertake. How do you go about improving the financial health of an entire country? Where do you even start? Luckily, these amazing people we spoke to have some answers. The Center for Financial Services Innovation does some amazing work in this space. Jennifer Tescher explains how they measure financial health, which financial service providers can use to measure their customers or their business itself in order to assess their financial strength or vulnerability. So we've really been on a journey to build a framework and a measurement system for financial health because what gets measured gets managed. Um, And it's very nice to say we're all in the financial health business. Isn't that nice? But if you're not really holding yourself accountable for it, then what's the point? And so we've built um, a series of indicators and metrics of how you would actually measure financial health. We've built an algorithm so we can score your customers or your employees um, on a scale of zero to 100. And, you know, 80 to 100 is healthy. Um, The middle is coping. And at the bottom end is folks who are vulnerable. Taking a measure is a strong place to start. Data drives good decision-making and is irrefutable. Once you have the data, 
you can start to drive that number. And you can see how the incentives of an organization can even be aligned around that number to help their customers address it. That's exactly right, because for us, while we put the customer at the center, we're about trying to help financial services companies understand what it means to be in the financial health business. And what that means is asking the question, is my business model aligned with customer success? Do I make money as a result of my customers being successful? And now we've got a whole set of tools for folks to use to actually see if that's the case. And if it's not, to use it to make strategy decisions, product design decisions, customer experience decisions, so that it's actually part of the way you run your business, the way you run your institution. Putting customers first. That's something we're hugely passionate about in everything we do here at 11FS. And it's surely the only way to tackle financial health. Two companies that do just that are in John Hope's portfolio, Operation Hope and Promise Homes. John Hope tells us about the two companies he runs tackling this issue. So Operation Hope builds you up from a human capital uh, software perspective, FinTech. So it's the software side of the equation. Uh, we raise your credit scores. We get you to recommit to yourself. We prepare you to become, to enter into the free enterprise marketplace. And then Promise Homes is almost a payoff of the setup. That's becoming a homeowner. That's leaning into the economy. That's getting a $25 an hour job. It's proving the model on the commercial side. So it's the nation's largest financial literacy and financial inclusion organization for the invisible class and the underserved. We're the private banker to the working poor, the working class, and the struggling middle class, folks with too much month at the end of their money. Right now, we're the largest minority-controlled institutional quality owner of single-family rental real estate in America, which is both inspiring and a little distressing. That inspiring for obvious reasons, did that in a year and a few months. It's distressing because it was so easy to do and the bar is so low, which suggests that maybe a lot of people aren't focusing on what they need to be focusing on from my communities. We also spoke to Dr. Anita Ward, the president of Operation Hope, who told us just a bit more. We work with the unbanked and the underbanked and low-income communities, providing them with financial well-being. So we're creating that same kind of technology where we do custom interventions for people. So you fill out a series of questions. We have algorithms that run in the background that present back scores. And then each contributing factor to your financial health and well-being has a score, and then we create a composite score. So you have an index of your financial well-being health, just like we did with brain health. And then you know what levers to pull. So what levers contribute to your health and well-being? So really, Operation Hope's a fintech company. We have, I have data scientists yeah. and economists, and we do Tableau, we, do, we put all of our data in Stata. So we're actually building Stata models and doing regression analysis. We're really not your normal, your dad's nonprofit, right? So yes. one of it is individual well-being. But what if you could create and support these small businesses in these communities and actually create an ecosystem in a community like Inglewood in South Chicago? Right, so we have a program that we call digital entrepreneurship, and we can't scale, we're just like our bank partners. I can't keep doing bricks and mortar, although we do have 126 locations yes, now. Yes, you do. So we have grown, we opened one office a week last year. So our growth is crazy. So we, we put together entrepreneurship and education. We created this digital platform, and we really think that those are the circuit breakers for this cycle of poverty. So if we can implement and create new ecosystems for community uplift through technology and human behavior, which again, I don't know how to separate, 
uh, then uh, we believe we can bring economic uplift to communities around the world. Likewise, Ramona Ortega's My Money, My Future, a free money management and financial advice platform, aims to help American millennials gain financial literacy and learn how to manage their finances effectively. The platform's aim is to upskill the millennial demographic and give them access to the advice they need up front to try and prevent them from becoming financially vulnerable in the future. So when I started My Money, My Future, the idea was that you know, I wasn't going to be able to fix a lot of these things overnight, right? I mean, you, there's no one solution that's the silver bullet. And so what is it that working backwards, what was it that I could be doing to change the trajectory going forward? It's often easier to um, prevent a problem than to solve a problem that already exists, right? And so when um, we thought about our, our demographic, we said, that, um, you know, we have a growing millennial demographic that's very multicultural. It's the most diverse generation ever in the U.S. And so there was a real opportunity for us to create a product or platform through technology and scale it to give financial guidance. Because one of the things that we heard in our early focus groups was it's not so much that people don't use the technology, right? They may use an app, but they just don't feel like they have anywhere to go to ask questions. They don't have anyone to guide them. And so they really wanted that trusted source of information. And so what we did was bundle that, right? So FinTech in some ways have unbundled banking. What we thought about was really trying to, how do we rebundle the tools and resources that people need onto one platform? And so it's uh, it's financial advice and guidance, which some people call financial education, and coupled with the ability to take action on that particular sort of interest or financial topic, such as retirement or banking or um, savings. It's very clear that we're focused on the digital generation, which you know very much is a millennial generation. Um, they are diverse. They're curious. They want you know. D- they're used to having digital applications and using the technology to get information and to take action. And I think that's what's really important is the coupling of those two together. Nobody wants to just go and do a, an education module. And we don't do that, by the way. That's why I stay away from saying that we do financial education. What we're doing is, is really giving people the information they need to make an informed decision about a financial product or a financial decision. So those are three examples of organizations set up specifically to help people with their financial health and well-being, and not just individuals, but entire communities too. The subject of financial literacy that Ramona speaks about and works closely with on My Money, My Future is so, so important, especially if we're going to reverse the negative trend of the spread of wealth in this country. Financial problems are one of the biggest causes of stress and worry for so many people, and sources of help and advice are so valuable. But what about existing financial service providers? Shouldn't they be doing more to help their customers without having them to look to third parties to advise and help them out? Traditionally, it's not been the bank's interest to help you manage your money better if they can make money by finding you for getting overdrawn or offering easy access to credit with huge interest rates. However, regulators are beginning to wake up to the importance of financial health and well-being and to focus on fairness in the market and make financial service institutions aware of their social responsibilities. This is Ramona. So government clearly has a role. 
philanthropy has a role and financial institutions have a role, and that includes tech, right? So technology and fintech who are working towards this. This is Isabel Barras. On some aspects, regulators definitely have a role to play to provide a level playing field for all actors in terms of market conduct, in terms of disclosure requirements and market conduct and complaints management, regulators have a role to play. There is also a case to be made for the providers themselves to adopt good practices, whether or not they're regulated. Because again, depending on the type of clients that we're looking at and and the types of organizations that serve them, uh, there are many financial service providers that are not currently falling under the realm of regulation. And I'm thinking of the fintechs, for example, um, in many countries. And so it is also very critical for the financial service providers to be ahead of regulation and to think of what practices, what what defines good practices and and policies and what they need to have in place really to provide financial services responsibly and to build trust with their clients, whether or not they are mandated to do so by a regulator. Companies should be looking out for their customers anyway. Regulators shouldn't have to regulate to ensure it's done. But the fact that they're doing so does at least create some security and reassurance for consumers. What does this consumer protection look like? When we think of financial consumer protection, we're looking at a number of aspects. We're looking at the extent to which the products and services are designed and delivered in an appropriate manner. So the extent to which they answer the needs of the consumers and are just matching their their cash flows uh, for credit in particular. So the first aspect that we look at is the appropriateness of the products, the product design and the delivery channels and the extent to which they match the needs of the clients. The second area is prevention of over-indebtedness, so making sure that the credit products are designed in a way that matches the cash flow of the consumers, especially when we're talking about unbanked and underbanked uh, consumers, the just uh, making sure that we prevent over-indebtedness and take into account the repayment capacity analysis. Another area is transparency and responsible pricing, then also fair and responsible delivery of products, privacy of client data, and now increasingly we're looking at issues of uh, data security also with the digital financial services and mechanisms for complaint resolution. So ensuring that the financial service providers have the tools and systems in place to allow to gather client feedback and incorporate their feedback into their product design and their services. So the CSFI is working with the regulators to ensure fairness for all with the existing financial services players. What part does FinTech have to play? And what role are they taking already in this space? Fintechs often carve themselves a niche in standing apart from existing incumbents at being more fair, more transparent, more focused on their customers. What is their impact on financial health? Isabel gives us her perspective. A lot of interest from digital credit providers in being able to uh, distinguish themselves as responsible players 
And we are currently working, we have developed a certification program that was launched a few years ago in 2016 that enables to recognize providers that have adopted sound practices that are protecting consumers and building trust. And we're in the process of updating those certification guidelines so that they can adequately address the new risks that are rising with the new models, the digital credit models. And we're seeing a lot of interest for that, both from the fintechs themselves, but also from their investors as well, who are interested in, in figuring out what it means to be a responsible fintech, what does it, what is a fair algorithm uh, that takes into account not just the likelihood that a, a, a financial service provider is going to be repaid, but also takes into account the repayment capacity analysis of the clients and ensures that clients are not over indebted. So looking at issues like that, what does fair disclosure look like in the context of mobile loans where you have, um, uh, you have very high limitations in terms of, you know, the options that you have to disclose the information on a mobile phone, for example. So just figuring out what are going to be the new guidelines for digital credit providers. Ramona told us how she sees the role of fintech. I think that that's something that I push back on in terms of how we think about financial inclusion. It's not a one tool is going to fix this. And especially with, you know, what, what's been happening in fintech is that we've created a lot of features that have become companies, right? So a savings app or a budgeting app, and all of those are in and of themselves extremely important. And they're part of being financially stable and having a foundation, but not one of them alone is sufficient to get someone to be financially included, right? Or have financial mobility, which is really what's important. We always talk about um, not in, in My Money, My Future, we have sort of a tagline that's don't just survive, thrive. And because that's really what we want people to, to, to do. But one of the things that I see happening is much more integration of financial services into everyday life. So it's something that we're seeing here in the U.S. Um, is things, you know, Amazon's talking about financial services, for example. Walmart's talking about financial services. So I, the idea is that you're meeting people where they're at already. The next phase of fintech is integration with non-traditional financial institutions and meeting people where they are. Meeting people where they are is such an important message, and certainly where we at 11FS see the future of financial services going. Making frictionless, seamless financial products and services is the best way to get people using them, learning from them, and taking control of their own finances and futures. Making financial services accessible to all and easy to use and understand takes away the fear factor of banking, and it makes it easier to address any financial worries or concerns head on and therefore less easy to brush away with, I'll just do it later. Jennifer also has the most important point of all, the real macro reason why this is so important. But we somehow forget that this isn't just like a nice thing to do or the right thing to do for some people who may or may not be representative of our broader customer base, but this is so tied with the broader macro economy and success of our economy, our democracy, this really is incumbent upon all of us. It will benefit the national economy if everyone is more financially secure. 
if more than 55% of people are financially secure, and better still, if more than 28% are financially healthy. It does the wider economy no good to have millions of people struggling to pay their bills and getting into debt. So to conclude, we asked our five interviewees what they think the future of financial inclusion and well-being will look like from their different perspectives and viewpoints. Uh, uh, I'm excited about all of it, but I mean, uh, if you're not excited about life, why are you doing it? Put both feet in it and live. Otherwise, go sit down somewhere and let somebody else live. Operation Hope is firing on all cylinders. We've opened 130 Hope Inside locations. We're raising credit scores 120 points in 24 months. We've just opened up a Hope Inside of UPS for the workplace. We're scheduled to open up a new Hope Inside with Delta Airlines for their employees. We're in Atlanta Police Department for law enforcement officers because they're filing for bankruptcy at double the national average. Wow. That's pretty dangerous to have a, a law enforcement officer who's stressed out financially. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we are in two school systems, not for the kids, but for the teachers the, and the adults who work in the school system. We are in city halls. We're in hospitals for the hospital employees who never seem to go home. We've just launched in Puerto Rico with FEMA for so emergency financial disaster response and recovery, because after you have a, an emotional and physical disaster, you then have a financial disaster. Now you have a car loan and no car anymore, and a home loan and no home anymore, and a small business loan, and the small business is uh, literally underwater. So we're going into Puerto Rico for mid and long-term economic recovery. We're going to Houston with J.P. Morgan Chase and American Red Cross for mid to long-term recovery from the disasters, the floods there from last year. We are um, working with the federal government now who wants to match fund our work. I think the biggest area that excites me beyond us becoming the Starbucks of financial inclusion in general is in being a, and, and building a thousand Hope Inside locations committed by 2020, operational in the years uh, after that, because it takes a while to stand them up, is our work, in the, our work in the workplace. I think that our work for youth in schools is a game changer, because that's where you find our young people. Or work in the workplace for adults is, is going to be a game changer. No, uh, no different than health wellness was a decade ago. Uh, it was a game changer that, that moderated and managed health care costs that were spiraling out of control. This is Isabel Barras. Great question. So what is the future of um, consumer protection and fairness going to look like? I think it is going to require the, the collaboration of a number of actors. We've already seen tremendous change in the last 10 years since the time the Smart Campaign for Consumer Protection and Financial Inclusion was launched. There is an increased number of regulators that have adopted good consumer protection, financial consumer protection regulation. Uh, we have sandboxes that are in effect in many countries and, and continuing to grow and increased collaboration with regulators and industry bodies. I think that trend is going to continue and is uh, definitely hugely beneficial uh, so that as we look at a world where, so I, ideally we would look at a world where the financial providers are, where consumer protection is second nature, where offering services responsibly is second nature. And so I think in the future we can, you know, hopefully that we, we will, we will get there and there will not be conflicting recommendations for providers who want to be responsible, uh, the, the regulation will be aligned with the guidelines that are coming from industry bodies. And there will also be a way to continue to hear directly from clients what is important to them. 
This is Ramona Ortega. So I think the short-term changes is that we're going to start to see people wanting more out of fintech in the sense that it's not just going to be enough to have like a single product, right? And I think we're already seeing this is that people will start with a single product, but they start to grow because especially around financial inclusion or financial education uh, or even financial advice, it's not just a one moment practice, like uh, spending money, saving money, budgeting, all of that are daily things that impact your life all the time. And I think that what we're seeing is sort of a a more inclusive um, sort of fintech structure Uh, for the long term. And those are like the macro changes especially in the U.S., I think it's going to be the changing demographics. As we move closer to 2040, which is sort of when you're going to reach a milestone in demographics here in the U.S. for as a sort of minority majority, we are going to see a real impact both politically, but also in um, sort of how are we addressing the needs of this particular demographic that's going to be a majority, particularly from a financial services. And that's both retirement, banking, savings, but those core, those core products. And because they haven't, we haven't done a great job about in terms of reaching those demographics. And I think that's going to become more and more of an, uh, a pressing priority as the demographics in the U.S. change. This is Jennifer Tesher. I'm excited about the traction that I'm seeing and having keynotes at Money 2020 focused there and being seen as legitimate definitely is a good signal but we can't rest there because it would be very easy for financial health, financial wellness, financial inclusion to just be the next blah, blah, blah. You know, well, we all feel good. We're all talking about it. That must mean we care and we're doing something, but that's not, that doesn't mean anything really. And so uh, it's my job. It's CFSI's job to keep pushing. Uh, And so we have a financial health leaders program as an example, where about 30 to 40 companies at this point have stood up and said, we want to actually be part of not just saying we're doing the right thing, but actually starting to measure the financial health of our customers. Last word has to go to John Hope Bryant. This man can preach. I've said it before, but listening to him is like going to church. I want your listeners to know and remember, though, uh, as they're listening to this program, that people listened to Dr. King in similar fashions in the 60s. Just another interview, they thought. They listened to Abraham Lincoln. They listened to Frederick Douglass in their day. They listened to Harriet Tubman. Maybe it wasn't on a podcast. Maybe it wasn't on radio. Maybe it was an audience. Uh, Maybe it was the printed word. But my point is that history never feels historic when you're sitting in it. It just feels like another day. That doesn't mean that you're not sitting in a moment in history, as I think we are today. So I want your, your readers, your listeners, your observers to pay attention to how they can make a difference. Massive internships massive apprenticeships, help somebody help themselves, teach somebody you know or you don't know how to fish. This episode was hosted by me, Sam Mall. It was written by Laura Watkins, produced by Laura Watkins and Petra Barisha, edited by Michael Bailey and Alex Woodhouse. Our thanks go out to John Hope Bryant, Anita Ward, Jennifer Tesher, Isabel Barres, and Ramona Ortega. 11FS, the people who brought you this podcast, transform businesses. And frankly, we get shit done. To find out what we can do for you, visit 11fs.com or email hello at 11fs.com. If we hooked you with this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast client. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube for more exclusive content. Thanks for listening.